we're back. Um, sorry for the delay. Has had a few setbacks, but um, I'm cutting the intro. I just wanted to get straight into it because um, this week we have a very special guest, Marquan Smith. He's the creator, producer, and actor on Godfather of Harlem. It's an incredible show that's streaming on Epics now. It's a story of Bumpy Johnson, an infamous uh, New York City gangster who is released from Alcatraz in 1963, and he's he's looking to reclaim his spot at the top of the um, Harlem drug trade. The writing in this show is incredible, and it doesn't hurt that it has an all-star cast of legendary actors like Forrest Whitaker, Giancarlo Esposito, Vincent D'Onofrio, Marquand himself, and more. Uh, much like today, 1963 was a time of civil unrest um, with a thriving civil rights movement. Um, and it was interesting to watch this this um, this series and, and see the parallels of 1960s versus um, 2020 today. Um, and sadly, we still face a lot of the same issues. Um, and I was interested in hearing what Marquand had to say about that and if he noticed the same things that I noticed that were happening then versus now. Yeah, absolutely. When we first, uh, when, the, when the show was first greenlit, that was part of our initial pitch because everything that was happening in, this, in 63 is parallel to what's happening in 2019, 2020, 2018, 2017, 2016 America. And, you know, et cetera. Uh, you know, 1963, Muhammad Ali is our Colin Kaepernick. The, the Ferguson killing of Michael Ferguson was uh, the Harlem riots. It's uh, everything, you know, James Powell could be considered to be George Floyd. It's mm. so parallel. History just repeats itself. So that was one of the uh, great things. I've always heard that history will come back. You know, it's, it's a circle. And what was happening in the 60s is happening right now with civil unrest and uh, the uprisings, as you call them. Marquand spent time as a roadie for his brother, who was Father MC, a popular rapper during the 80s. One of his more notable music videos is Treated Like She Want to Be Treated. I'm not that picky, but being picky is just for self. I must protect what I respect, and that is me and not someone else. I've been mistreated. In a few shots, you can even spot a young dancing P. Diddy, along with a young Casey and JoJo singing background vocals. I wanted to know if he felt like he gained anything from being a roadie on his brother's tour, and if he felt those experiences contributed to the success that he has today. See, being a roadie, it, it gave me dis it, it gave me discipline. It made me uh, gave me structure in my life. Mm. You know, um, life is not just all about having fun and you know games. And you know, if I, I think if I was doing that, then I might have uh, when the tour was over, when the uh, the record label stopped calling, you know, I might have been out here just wondering how should I figure it out. Mm. My brother always was the type of person because. He was known as the chicken man. When I call him the chicken man, he worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken. And mm. um, everybody in the neighborhood knew him as the chicken man. But, you know, he used to come out with flour all over his uniform. But he always stayed fly. He had the latest ballets. He had the latest uh, silk shirts and everything. But he was always working. And he, he always told me, he, I guess he installed the, uh, the, 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 the value of 
of, of chasing your dreams. I remember hopping on the A train, drinking 40 ounces, eating those uh, Chinese rice with the red, uh, with the, with the, the red cup Chinese rice, <laughs> all the way to um, going to the new music seminar that wow. they used to do in Manhattan. Wow. And, um, you know, the grind was real, you know. If it wasn't from being in the, uh, being in the basement of Howie T's basement in Flatbush or being at Chunking Studios or being with, uh, with Marky e. D and, uh, and Corey Rooney at Soul Convention, it was, it was always a grind. And uh, that installed the value in me of, you know, hard work. Because as a roadie, a roadie wasn't fun. I mean, a roadie, I had to carry uh, what's called coffins. And those mm. coffins were with the 1200 turntables that my brother DJ uh, used to put his uh, his uh, his 1200s in. Mm. And, um, you know, Treacher was a roadie for Latifah. Pac was a roadie for Digital Underground. We had to do the grunt work that everybody else didn't do. Mm. Before we could enjoy, you know, the highlight for meeting new females and, and partying and everything, we had to make sure everything was on the bus. Whether it was a DAT machine, make sure the DAT show tape is safe. Make sure the coffin with the twelve hundreds, and if you had a, um, if you had a, uh, a, 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 a part of your show was like props and stuff like that, you had to break down the props and and bring it back to the bus. So it installed the value of me of hard work. Right, um, right. After my brother, I think it was his third album. After he did, I want to hit you, hit you with a sixty nine in Virginia with uh with Teddy Riley. You know, he left uptown and he and he went down to Miami. He was messing with Luke. He uh he had a deal with uh Tony Mercedes, uh, uh MC Hammer wanted to sign him, you know. So right. it was more like my brother was figuring out what his next move was, what his next step was, and right. he had let me go early. He did he fired me. He let oh, me go wow. just like just like Dre did the puff, but it wasn't a firing out of being malicious. He was firing me basically saying, like a, a mother bird will push a bird out the nest and say, you know, it's time for you to fly. Right, right, you got to go out there and get your own worms now. Right, because right. I'm not gonna be I'm not gonna be here much longer to be able for you to be riding my coattails. Right, and I've always had that that go getter attitude, you know. After receiving some tough love from his brother, Marquan had to figure out what his next move was and where he would get his next payday. In between figuring it all out and discovering his passion for film, he would run into some trouble with the law. So uh, you know, I played basketball. I went to school. Mm. And uh, ended up doing a little stint at Morgan down in Baltimore and um, got in some trouble. And the last time I got in trouble, I was like, yeah, this is it. My mother looked at me in the courtroom and she was like, you got to figure it out. Right. You know, I was signed to Whitney Houston's label. It was called A Better Place Records. Uh, it was uh, under a lecture. Merlin Bob and Sylvia Rowan were the heads, of, heads at that time. And they had a group called Sunday. Mm. And my cousin by the name of Harold Frazier, who had a company called The Specialist Entertainment, they did Pink's first album. That was when Pink was R&B, before she went the opposite way. And uh, um, yeah. I wasn't getting any money. I wasn't signed. Uh, I wasn't coming out yet. Nothing was coming in. I just went back to what I thought I knew best. Mm. And I got jammed up. And I can remember sitting in court. <laughs> it's so funny, right? I'm sitting in court in a, in a lobby. And uh, if you ever go to federal court, anytime something says the USA versus you, you know you're in some type of shit, right? <laughs> and um, and um, I'm sitting in the lobby and my mother's just like sitting next to me and this Italian guy comes out and I'm ear hustling him and I hear him talk to his girlfriend or 
and his family and say, hey, this is the judge right there who gave me 87 months. I looked at my mother. I said, 87 months? He's happy for 87 months. Hold up. 12 months is a year. 24 months is two years. 36 is three years. I said, oh, shit. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, by the grace of God, um, I went to court. You know, I had to handle what I had to handle like a man. And I started working at BET, uh, Black Entertainment Television. How did you get a foot in the door at BET? Was it someone that you knew? Did you fill out an application? How did that come about? You got to understand, I was on Donnie Simpson's couch. My brother had his deal. I was uh, on Team Summit's stage. You know, I was on the Apollo stage. You know, I knew people, but it wasn't just the people that I I knew. I I did it the old-fashioned way, Mm -hmm. sending in a resume. I initially wanted to host, but then uh, Tigger was doing Rap City, and I just fell into doing something I didn't want to do, which was the monotonous of uh, of post-production, right? Mm. I was was called a digitizer, and I was working alongside, uh, he's now the head of YouTube Music, uh, Tuma Bassa. Right, right? okay. Uh, And Tuma and um, Kelly G. I was working under them and I was basically sending music videos to Washington DC and getting them in heavy rotation, light rotation, and medium rotation anytime a video came in. And that wasn't me, you know. Um and I saw years just turning from one year to two years to three years to four years to five years. And I was like, why would I be working for someone to make them rich and fulfill somebody else's dreams? And I'm not I'm not at the top of their list for a promotion. And there is a ceiling here, you know? Right. I'm better than being in a cubicle. I'm better than being in a, in a dark corner with, with, no, with no office or no four walls. And I'm just there pressing buttons for producers who just say, hey, hey, Marquand, send this video down. Mm-hmm. And this is me coming from where I just came from, being around the world, going, traveling to Africa with Jermaine Jackson, right, right. touring, you know, Tupac is one of my good friends and you know and I'm sitting here and I'm looking at my integrity and I'm looking at how people are talking down to me and saying whatever and I'm not saying everybody was like that at BET this is not a bash at BET but they definitely had their their moments that I just felt that I wasn't welcome fast forward 16 years later I saw myself still there doing the same thing even though I was doing outside projects it was like I'm looking at my watch. Oh, shit. I got to be back in before my supervisor say, hey, Marquand, where you at? <laughs> Yo, right, lunch right, is right. over at 1230. <laughs> 1236 and you're not back yet. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. So I got tired of that because I'm a man at the end of the day. And I always had that mentality. I'm like, yo, three o'clock come. I'm going to fuck this motherfucker up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was just like, it just it just started getting to me where I was just like, it's time for me to leave, you know? Mm, mm. I didn't want to be that mad company guy that the only the only uh, perks I have are BET hip-hop tickets or mm. BET award tickets or hip-hop honor tickets that they have any. Or, right. yeah, we got like three tickets for you, but it's on the roof of the roof. You know what I'm saying? You can, <laughs> right, right. You know what I mean? It was really like that. Speaking of perks, like, did you feel like in that situation, 
you can leverage some of those relationships to make other other projects happen. Because I find that a lot of people in those situations or uh, at big companies like that, that's why they work there because they say, okay, I'm at BET or I'm at NTV. Let me, let me tell you something. A lot of that is urban legend because when you're at companies like that, a lot of people cock block and mm. say, you know what? If we see you talking to talent, even though I may know talent from outside, you're right. frowning upon right. it. Right. If we see you working and putting out projects and it's not coming to us, they have a problem with that, right? Right, right. And I'm not a, I'm, and I'm not a full-time employee. I'm what's right. called a permalance. So right. how are you going to tell me how I can provide for myself and my family you're telling me and I, I and i'm not getting benefits or anything like that but that's a whole different story but um, right, right. after 16 years in i just said it was time to go but um i was like forced out basically uh viacom merged with bet back in 2000 and the real mergers the real merger happened i believe in 2015 when it was no more brown faces so there was no more BET HR. It was Viacom HR. There was no more BET Finance. It was Viacom Finance. Mm. You know, your your cluster of groups within BET, like your departments were being consolidated. Like mm. you, everybody was on eggshells. Like, oh God, I hope, I hope, I hope I still have my job on Monday morning. Right. And um, you know, I'm hearing that people are sending uh, grief counselors down to D.C. because people were there for like 21, 22 years and all of a sudden their department folded. Now, how I, I need money to put my kids through college. I got mortgages and stuff like that. I never wanted to be like that and it started to resonate more. Mm. And I remember the day that I got let go when my supervisor, you know, that's when I realized you don't really have friends at work. You have, a lot of them are just associates right. or, work, or work friends mm. called me in the... Uh, in the conference room and said, he made it seem like it was a team meeting, right? It wasn't a team meeting. When I came in, it was HR, it was him, and it was his boss. And they said, thank you for your 15 or 16 years of service. Uh, we won't be needing you anymore. And he said, basically, we can't pay anybody anymore. I was like, oh, okay. And then they give you an envelope with four checks for 16 years, which added up to $4,000. So That's that crazy. really- that really was like the spark in me that just like, hmm, let me go, let me go out there and do what I need to do. 16 years at a company. That's something that I think many of us in media today will never experience. On the plus side, um, you never get too comfortable and you keep your skills sharp so that you're ready for other opportunities. On the negative side, you always have to be ready for new opportunities. Um, but I can imagine to work f for someone for 16 years and then have the rug pulled from underneath you so suddenly and with the family can be devastating. But this was a blessing in disguise for Marquand. He was able to find a silver lining. And with more time on his hands, he was able to focus and hone in on a project that he had been developing for 18 years. Godfather of Harlem. Interestingly enough, it was all sparked by his godmother, Margaret. Margaret is my godmother. I mean, mm. she's like, she's an older lady that I used to come see in Harlem in Lenox, Lenox Towers on off of Lenox Avenue uh, all the time. She lived on 100 and, I think it was 137th and Lenox. 
And I used to go up there every Sunday and I would sit down and I would hear these magical stories from Margaret. Her house was like a, a museum, you know, hoarded with dope books. And you just felt, you felt an element of Bumpy Johnson's spirit there from his chessboard to his pictures. That was her grandfather, her father, her everything. And she used to tell me these magical stories. She used to tell me about coming outside and smelling fresh laundry hanging out a tenement window in Harlem. Mm. Or walking past 125th Street in the Apollo and seeing James Brown's name on top of the marquee. Or walking past uh, Sugar Ray Robinson's barbershop and Nat King Cole's getting a shape up. Or hearing mm. Sam Cooke's voice coming out of a transistor radio. She used to tell me these magical, magical things. And I used to be mesmerized every Sunday coming up there listening to her. You mm. know, I would get her her favorite sandwich, which was... Uh, which was tongue, beef tongue, oh, and rye goodness. bread and mustard. And I would, and would take it up there and I would just sit there and I would just listen to her. But she, always, she also told me about back then people migrated from North Carolina, Alabama, South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, to New York looking for a better life. But it was still racism. It was still civil unrest as you see on CNN every night. You know, mm -hmm. there were stores that a black person couldn't walk in and get a hat or purchase a hat without them saying, well, you need to put on a shower cap to mm. buy that hat. Mm. Or, 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 or a black family couldn't even get a steak dinner. They had to sit outside and wait for them to, to give them their dinner so they could eat it elsewhere because mm. the patrons out there was just white. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, and she also used to tell me about her, her grandfather, whose name was Eldreth Raymond Johnson, who came up here from uh, Charleston, South Carolina. He was a Geechee Guller. And um, he was the first person that actually sat down with the mob. He mm. sat down with the likes of Lucky Luciano, Maya Lansky, Frank Costello, Vito Genovese. You know what I'm saying? These mm. guys are legends in the Italian, over there on uh, Pleasant Avenue. They're legends in the Italian community. These guys was gangsters. They were outlaws. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? And um, Nelson Mandela has a saying, I might chop it up, but he said it. When a man can't live the way he chooses to live, he becomes an outlaw. And that's what that's what Bumpy Johnson did. You know, they didn't look at him as a as a nigger. They looked at him as a Negro. And when I say nigger, I don't mean it in a derogatory way because nigger to me means ignorance. Right. Nigger doesn't have to be just black. It could be Irish. It could be Asian. Mm. It could be uh, a, a Philippine. It could be Italian. It means ignorance to me. You know what I'm saying? And they didn't look at him as that. He had a high IQ. The warden in Alcatraz said his IQ was above normal. You know. He read books, he read Shakespeare, he read Nietzsche. It's a uh, urban legend that he beat Bobby Fischer in chess. He was mm. a uh, he was a gentleman. He came mm. up to Harlem to become an attorney. And when the bursar said, we don't give colored people financial aid, he said, I'm gonna make you regret what you just said. And he became an outlaw. He mm. became that person that couldn't live the way, the life he, he wanted to live. Malcolm mm. X wanted to be an attorney. They both wanted to be attorneys. So I just felt the story was amazing. She didn't want the same cotton club story that was told or the American gangster lies that was told because Bumpy didn't die in an electronic store watching 40 RCA TV talking about, you know, Pepsi is the best product you know, in America and my product mm. is just like that. Mm. Bumpy died in my character's arms. I play a character by the name of Junie Bird eating, eating waffles and um, eating a, a waffle and chicken dinner at Wells. You know, right. she didn't want the she didn't want the uh, the Hollywood version of Hoodlum, who uh, my showrunner Chris Brancato and Paul Eckstein wrote to be told. You know, she wanted a story that was told 
that uh, resonated to who her, her grandfather was, who her daddy was, who she woke up to every Sunday, who took her to get ice cream, who was, right. her, who, who was her hero, who was her life. So that's, that was how it came about. And a shitload full of research at the Schomburg Museum in Harlem. Before you start pitching a project or getting somebody excited or interested in your project, you have to set the project up and make sure that it's legible and people can understand what your vision is. Hmm. So I spent hours going through microfilm, old newspaper clippings. There wasn't that much, uh, much articles on uh, Ellsworth or um, Adam Clayton Powell. There were articles on and Malcolm X, but Bumpy Johnson, there was not that many, um, much um, things to read up on. Right. And then, uh, you know, it was a process, you know, Forrest is like my big brother, you know, and I sitting down with his uh, team, sitting down with his management team and his, and his uh, producing partner, Nina Yang Bon Jovi, who's a great, great producing uh, individual on this project and selling my story to them that uh, I believe this story can be told and it's, it should be told. You know what I mean? Mm. And then getting it to the writers and the showrunners, uh, Chris Brancato and Paul Eckstein, who took my vision and said, you know what, this is how we're going to take your vision and we're going to flip it this way to make it more, uh, more, uh, the narrative more, uh, more now, you mm -hmm. know, the story of the Harlem Renaissance has been told, you know, the story about Dutch Schultz and, and Bumpy Johnson has been told, let's tell it a different way of America in the future when he comes home from Alcatraz. Beyond going to the museum and doing the research, was it you sitting with Margaret and just hitting play and she just went? Or did you have to like ask certain questions? And These, it's, it's, it's been years and I can't really tell you because it's been years and years and years and years of us talking. Mm. You know, she had a, a script that she had wrote called Daddy's Little Girl mm. and it was being started, mm. okay? Um, she was in business before to get the project done with Dame Dash. That didn't work out for whatever reason. Uh, and, you know, the rights reverted back to her. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell people on your platform, it's really not about rights anymore because when you're a public figure, you can go out there and make, make a project. It's really about the intellectual property and how you tell it. You feel what I'm saying? Right. So um, this wasn't just an overnight thing. You know, she was talking and wanted to get her father's story put out. Her, uh, her mother... Uh, put out a book called the, the the rap on the Harlem Godfather, I believe, you know, but that was through her mother's, uh, uh, her mother's eyes. Right. You know what I'm saying? That right. Margaret didn't, Margaret didn't have anything to do with it, you know? Mm. So Margaret wanted to tell her version of what she knew of her father, mm. uh, Eldreth Raymond Johnson. Right. So like I said, I can't really say uh, it was play and go. It was over the years of just communicating and, me saying that, you know, I'm going to go out here and make this project happen. I'm going to go make this happen. I'm going to make this happen, you know? Right. And I'm not a type of person that I write down notes. I, it just stays in my head, you know? Like right. some rappers go in the booth and just spit. Jay-Z is notorious for that. I'm notorious to, you tell me something, I'm going to remember it. That's how my brain operates. Right. And I just start creating and, and crafting things together. And then I put it uh, on paper. How do you go about selling a story like that? Did you have to present a rough script? Um, and also, how did Chris Brancato uh, get involved? No, it wasn't a rough script. The script came from Chris Brancato. Okay. Chris, is, Chris created the TV series Narcos. 
Okay. What came for me was the concept and the idea and the premise. Okay, got Paul it. Paul Eckstein, Paul Eckstein started building the script. And like I said, it was about a year of writing the script before Chris, uh, Chris committed to say, you know, I want to be part of this. Because Chris was working on, I believe, two other shows. He was working on the El Chapo uh, uh, series and uh, a project on CBS called Las Serenas that, that uh, I think it was in pilot form, but it didn't get picked up. Okay. So it was, it wasn't what, how you sell a show is putting your thoughts together, uh, putting a dope, dope visual or deck together so that your buyer can understand and see what you're trying to sell and just building a team. Okay. So it's not all about writing a script because you can write a script and they take it in and say, we don't want the script and chuck it. We want right. this person to do it. Then you did all of the work for him. Right. Always work for nothing, you know what I mean? Right, right. So um, it was more about me putting the pieces in the puzzle and painting the picture. So what I did, I painted the outline of the picture of how I wanted the story to be told and what the story should look like. And then my team came in to help me put the different shades of color in. You feel what I'm saying? Right, right. And so, we weren't and we weren't scared to color outside the lines either. You know what right, I mean? And, and that's so, that's that's Paul, right? You said Paul came in and helped, like kind of like formulate Paul, the, Paul, it was myself, myself and Jim Atchison. Jim is a wonderful individual. He's from, uh, he's from Boston. Him and his wife were like, they're like my big brother and my big sister. Okay. He believed in what I told him and what I sold him. They came up here to New York. They met with Margaret, sat down. Margaret loved them. You know, I, I, I remember having them, you know, uh, two Italians up in uh, Lennox Terrace just chilling in Margaret's <laughs> house, you know? Right. And she's like, who are these white folks? And I'm like, yo, that's Jim and that's Joanne. And um, she fell in love with them and um, and their son, Luca. And uh, they said, let's go. We believe in this project. We want to help you and assist you bring it over to, bring it over to, uh, over, to uh, over the goal line. Guys, and, and how did you meet um, Jim? How did that relationship um, well, Jim, well, well, Jim. Like I, like I said, I've been in this. I've been in this entertainment industry over twenty five years, and uh, I have a, a, a an uncle by the name of Bernard Alexander. Bernard is a, a real good guy, man. He's what I call the uh, the plug, or he connects the dots. Um, he used to manage EPMD. He's Eric Sermon's best friend. He used to manage uh, Fifty Cents. He discovered the Fugees. Hmm. He's also one of my oldest oldest friends and and family members that i look up to and he always believes in my dreams and my outrageous stories and my mm. thoughts and he said you know what i have somebody i need you to talk to and we, he, he plugged the pieces of, and then i just took and ran with it what were the different steps that you had to experience before actually being on set and in production uh okay i'll, I'll tell you a few steps right mm -hmm. script buyer when you get the buyer, you sit down with pre-production. Mm. You're dealing with the line producers. You're dealing with uh, uh, set dresses. You're dealing with um, location. You're dealing with all these intricate parts of making a production. Mm. A lot of people don't understand that um, there's a there's there's something when you sell when you sell a show. It's called foreign sales and domestic sales, right? Mm. So your studio might say, we got the foreign aspect of it, while the network says we have the domestic aspect of it, right? Mm. If you have a black project or an urban project, like they say, they, don't, they, don't, they think we're not going to win right away because 
there's a myth that says urban or black projects do not sell well overseas. Mm. You feel what I'm saying? Right. So it's a lot of different steps before you go out there and, 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 and you have the Haddad trucks or you have the lightning bolt trucks out there and you have the honey wagons and all that other stuff. It's about selling the show. It's about someone believing and saying, you know what? We want this show. We ready to go in business with you and we ready to make this happen. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So gotcha. I tell people all the time is you can have a, you can have the best script ever, but now it's about going in there and selling it to a buyer. That's going to believe in turning your script into your vision. As a, producer or director or just anyone in production the night before a shoot i'm always very nervous and i can't sleep because i'm always thinking about the different possibilities and things that could go wrong and i'm making sure that all my my eyes are dotted and my t's are crossed and um a lot of the times even though the checklist is set and everything is accounted for um unfortunately not always, sometimes, you do run into situations where you have to create audibles. Um, so I wanted to know if Marquand felt that um, that nervousness or, or, or that anxiety um, before the first day of production. Nah, I felt from the production, I knew it was something special. Mm. You know, I didn't come in, I didn't come in there thinking that, oh my God, this is, I was always optimistic because if you know the journey that I've been through personally and then the journey on getting the show sold when we got turned down by three networks, I just came in there with a happy face. Like, you know, we have accomplished something that people said that was impossible to us. We had three networks turn us down and say, hey, this is not for us. To being out here, to being the number one show on the network, to having nine million new subscribers during the pandemic, to having 2.5 million subscribers during regular season and to being nominated for an NAACP award mm. and crossing my fingers, we get an Emmy nod. You know what I'm saying? So, nah, I didn't go in there with that type of energy. I knew we, I went in there and said we got something special. I watched another interview of yours while preparing for our conversation and you mentioned that going on set as an actor with legends like Forrest Whitaker and Giancarlo Esposito that... Um, it's like a heavyweight bout. It's like a heavyweight boxing match, right? Um, what did you mean by that? What is a boxing match for actors? It's really about what you what you studied and the method that you have and what how your performance is and how you become like I am a, a miser. Mm. I I become part of my surroundings. Mm. You know, uh, if you looked at the Joker and you saw how Joaquin Phoenix played the Joker, mm -hmm. the pre-Joker, and you look at Heath, how he played post-Joker. Mm. It's two different methods, you know what I'm saying? Those are two different movies. Mm. One is about the origin of how the Joker became the Joker. What was it that poked that bear in the room to make him bite at everybody? When he was mm. just that little teddy cuddly bear that was just laying on the couch, you know, wanted to be around the kids and everything like that, and now all of a sudden he's this big grizzly bear. What was it that mm. made him that way? And then you go to Heat, and he's a grizzly bear. He's dark. He's eating people in the woods. You feel what I'm saying? So right. it's how, you, your, how your development is, how you decide to put out that character or become that character. Mm. You know, Forrest is a method actor. You know, I look at Forrest and see him. He becomes a character. He becomes bumpy. You know, he, uh, 
that anger, that rage of what's happening, you know, in America at that time. That that's him. Mm. And you got Vincent D'Onofrio, who he he's that Italian racist, and he he acts with his hands. He moves around and he acts like that with his hands. Then you have John Carlo, who's playful, and he may have a script that says A B C D. Then he may say A B C D, H I J K L M, and then mm. come back to A B C D. And he just hits you a Buddha boot, and you have to figure out, oh shit. So are you gonna figure it out now while the cameras are rolling and money is going, or you gotta figure it out? You have to become that. You feel what I'm mm. saying? There's no time to be frozen because gotcha. they can smell fear. People can smell blood. You feel what mm. I'm saying? Right. Like this is the time. If, if this is your moment, you take your moment and you go about it and get it. Do you feel like you learned anything on the first go around of a major production like this? I just know how to move. It's almost like uh, now you know how to move around in the uh, environment that you are placed in. Mm. Now you're not a deer in headlights. You know mm. the uh, the jargon, the lingo, the uh, what needs to be done, color corrections, ADR. You know it's all part of your anatomy. Mm. You know you absorbed it. So the next go around on the second season, you know exactly what to expect. Mm. It's like somebody going to prison for the first time, right? right? They're all scared. They're walking in. They don't know who's who, what's what, and everything like that. Second go around, you know what to expect. You know mm. what I'm saying? You know, right, right. okay, count is at this time. Oh, I know what they, they're going to be serving this on Wednesday and Thursday. You know what I'm saying? It right. all becomes, and, and, and your, your mind gets adapted. Your body gets adapted to what needs to be done, you know? Waking mm. up at four in the morning or five in the morning is, is easy now, you right. know, as a, as a call time, you know what I'm saying? Right. Like when the first half, I was like, oh shit, <laughs> are you serious? What time right. is call time? And we gotta be out here for how long? Right. A four to four? Right. Or a two to two? But now it becomes, you're accustomed to it. It becomes part of your, your, your you're adapted to it, you know? We were approaching the end of the interview and I wanted to know if Marquan had any words of advice for aspiring producers looking to get into television and film. Marquan spent 18 years developing his first major breakthrough. Not many people have that level of persistence. I think a lot of us start projects where two years go by with no traction and then you just move on to something else or it takes forever to get something finished because the circumstances aren't right. We all have been through it. That's life. It's liquid. Sometimes you can't find solid ground to stand on. But stay persistent and follow your dreams. It's possible. It's possible to find success, and Marquan is a testament of that. So here's the advice that Marquan had for aspiring professional creators. Being a fact, I'm, you know, from Far Rockaway, Queens, grew up in Harlem, but, um, where I'm from, there's no opportunities. It's a land of no opportunity. You know, we are uh, we're on a peninsula in in Queens, but it's like we don't know if we Queens, we don't know if we Brooklyn, we don't know if we in Long Island. That's where it's, that's just the way it is. That's the way the uh, the geographic is. And um, I always said to myself, you know, growing up in Far Rockaway, I, I learned a lot. I lost a lot of friends. Uh, R.I.P. Stack Bundles, R.I.P. Chinch Drugs. I could say, or I could keep saying R.I.P. all day. Right. I could have a closet full of R.I.P. shirts. You know what right. I'm saying? Right, right. And you know, uh, the 40 houses, uh, Beach 40th houses is like kind of where I 
you know, I my coming of age, my growing pains happened over there. And I just didn't want to come, go back to that to that atmosphere. Yeah. I, 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 I've, I've seen the world. I understand this in a different environment. There's different cultures out there. And I always was a creative person. I would actually like sit in a, in a dark room and just watch movies all day. Like, you know, my mother used to be like, are you okay? But I'll be watching movies like uh, Rebel Without a Cause, mm. On the Waterfront, Down These Main Streets, Taxi, um, Raging Bull, mm. you know? And I started to like, I started to like, my brain is like a sponge. I started to absorb different techniques. I could tell different directors. I could tell, you know, a, a Francis Coppola film. I could tell a, a Scorsese film. I can tell a Guy Ritchie film. I could tell Brian Grazer. I could tell a Spielberg. You know, it just started. Uh, I guess I just started like it started absorbing my whole being. And I just like to tell stories. I, right. I like to tell stories that can make someone laugh, make someone cry. If I'm the brain that sparks your brain to go to Wikipedia and say, hey, who's Adam Clayton Powell? Who's right. Malcolm X? Who's uh, Ellsworth Raymond Johnson? Who's uh, Vinny the Chin Gigante? Then I know I've done something. You know right. what I'm saying? Because right. someone sparked the brain in me to start reading. I mean, I was in juvenile facilities. I was... Uh, in Lincoln Hall, I remember, and um, my counselor gave me my first book, which was Man, Child, and the Promised Land by Claude Brown. And by reading that, that inspired me to want to read, you know? Right. You, couldn't have, you couldn't have just dropped Moby Dick or an old man in the yeah. sea on my lap and, and I wouldn't like, want to read it. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I right. wanted to read something that, that I could relate to. I say, never give up on your dream. Mm. Don't let anybody kill your dream. You're your own pursuit of happiness. Learn the learn the methods, like I said, um, to any actor. Exercise your muscle. Go do research, brother. It's it's a it's book knowledge. You know, just don't come on set saying I'm a director or a producer and don't know what you're talking about. You feel mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So I tell everybody, learn. You know, and never give up. You know, you you're your own worst enemy. Mm -hmm. A lot of people want success, but. A lot of people don't want to eat tuna fish sandwiches and ramen noodles. Mm. They don't want to sleep on somebody's floor at night knowing that they can't afford a hotel. They don't want to take a buddy pass knowing that they got a meeting at Netflix on Monday and hoping on Sunday there's room for you to get on that flight because you can't afford a, uh, a revenue uh, ticket to get on that plane. Mm. People say they want success, but they don't really want success. You feel what I'm saying? Right. So I tell anybody that's listening right now, learn your craft and... Don't expect nothing's supposed to be given from anybody. That's the, that's the problem we have. We expect, like, you have to give this to me. You'll get more no's than you can get yes. And if you have thick skin and you can take that, you're on your way. That's it for this week's episode of Good Ass Job. Thank you to Marquan Smith for being our guest. If you have any ideas, requests, or topics that you, the audience, would like us to cover, please shoot me a DM at good.ass.job on Instagram. You can also shoot us a message directly to the episode with the link provided in the description. This episode was brought to you by a sponsor that we don't have yet, but I'm sure we'll have one soon. Thank you for listening to this week's episode, and most importantly, keep doing a good-ass job.